Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Welcome to the Code Zoo Vine for August 2nd, 2020. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right, and we're in just about 20 minutes. We're going to have David Jonas, um, featured writer uh, for Political Wire, among other things. I know he works on a conservation agency in Virginia as well. This will be David's, I believe, third appearance on the show. Um, He's been writing a lot of pieces, not new chapters of the book, but a lot of different pieces uh, for Political Wire. And we're going to talk to him about, um, I think, almost all those, but he's written so much it's going to be hard to cover it all. But looking forward to that. Until then, um, we're going to start out talking about the two political conventions. We learned a little more about each one this week. Early in the week, Politico reported um, about the Democratic convention. Uh, Stephanie Cutter, who I believe was the communications director for John Kerry's campaign, was involved in Barack Obama's campaign. I believe she was involved in Al Gore's campaign. She's been involved in a lot of campaigns. She's doing um, a lot of the work on the convention, so I guess that's the person they got the information from. And it's going to be, of course, a four-night convention all remote. Um, it's going to be kind of handled like a TV show, even more so, uh, not like an arena event. And Joe Biden will accept the nomination from Milwaukee. Um, no idea where it'll be. I doubt he gets in. I don't think they play in the Bradley Center anymore, the Bucks. I doubt it's the Bucks Arena uh, that he'll accept it from because it'd be a little lonely. I'm sure it's going to be a much smaller venue. Uh, each night is going to have a theme. I Tried to look for, but could not find um, the list of uh, themes for each night because I listened to it and heard it on uh, political or Politico's daily briefing. And but I do know this: the Wednesday night theme, which is when the VP candidate um, uh, will be uh, speaking or traditionally will speak was the night where they talked about um, it kind of had a diversity theme, and I didn't know if that was kind of a tip-off, even though a a woman vice presidential candidate will be diversity uh, compared to the overwhelming majority of most presidential tickets in American history, but I I thought that might have been a little tip-off, if you will. Catherine, I don't know which parts about this you had heard, but uh, tell us your thoughts. Well, I'm glad they decided to go all virtual. I think that smart in the <clears throat> face of the, you know, rising numbers in the, of the pandemic and to keep everyone safe. And I think that any combination of like hybrid would just be confusing and uh, un, unruly. Like it would be hard to, to navigate. So I think that's great news. I'm glad that, um, Joe Biden is going to come out from his basement and uh, and be there live. I think that's a good choice. And you're right. I'm sure it's going to be a small venue. It could be as small as a, you know, 
small hotel conference room, really. I mean, there shouldn't be more than 10 or 20 people there if they're following all the guidelines. Um, and I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I think we're all like, you know, on pins and needles about the VP choice. So hopefully we'll know that ahead of time, but we may not. I mean, it sounds like he's just extending it and extending it. So we'll see. But I think this is all good news for Democrats. I think it makes us look responsible and conscientious and concerned about the safety of our members. So I think that's all good. Yeah, I don't think he's going to introduce the surprise (laughs) tag partner uh, the week of the convention. I I do think we'll know who that person is, and there will be some information before she makes her big speech on presumably Wednesday night. Um, you know, you could do things different. Uh, talking about being Milwaukee and basements, uh, maybe they can get the Foreman family basement from the 70s show because that show was set in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So um, that, that, that might be perfect if they could get another famous basement um, besides Joe Biden's. Uh, Tim, seriously, how is this going to affect things, you think, it being virtual? And this will be the first one not the second one in which it has this completely different feel from any convention and recorded um, convention history. We don't know how it's going to affect things. I mean, we assume that, well, like with the Democratic convention, they have announced that counting party officials, Biden's people, and media, They are limiting the attendance total to 300 people. So it's not going to be a big place. And they're not all going to be in the same place at the same time, obviously, because I just named these different groups of people that are going to be doing things. Uh, and, And another thing we're thinking, you know, people have always depended on big, convention bumps, Uh, especially Trump is desperate for one. Um, The average bump has been about five points, and then it would settle back. That's not going to be enough to help Trump a lot. And I don't think we're going to see these big bumps because we're not going to have these gigantic crowds and balloons and confetti and every famous person you can think of. And, uh, for instance, on the second night, Barack Obama is going to be speaking on the second night of the convention. I'm pretty sure he won't be there. I I mean, I imagine he'll be speaking remotely from, uh, you know, Chicago or or somewhere like that. Um, So... uh, we we really don't know what this is going to do or if it's going to affect the race at, at, at all. I did hear today that they are mulling around the idea of keeping that announcement of the vice presidential candidate as close to the start of the convention as possible which would generate a lot of talk around the convention. The thinking is, name your vice presidential candidate, gets a lot of press, maybe more people tune in. There'll be about 
probably two hours of programming each night. So we we, we just don't know, David. We we, we don't know, what, especially with the Republicans, as we'll discuss in a minute. We don't know nothing about them much, but. Yeah. Now, now, one thing. I mean, if you had to have people haven't looked on a map, you could easily drive from Chicago to Milwaukee. So, if there was an advantage to having Barack and/or Michelle Obama speak from uh, Milwaukee, I mean, I don't know if there really would be. They could easily and safely drive up. Um, you know, it's not like you have to get an airplane or anything like that uh, to travel and and put anybody at risk that way. Um, but I mean, you may can do it. From Chicago, just fine. Well, he still has a residence in Chicago. He may have more than one, but he definitely has his main residence in Chicago, yes. Oh, I thought he lived in D.C. Yeah. No, he I think spends that was a the lot of time there. Finish. He spends a lot of time yeah. in D.C., and he does have a house there now. Yeah, yeah he was, they were letting his uh, younger daughter finish school, from what I understand, although, as you know, no, no advantage to being in the city of your school, uh you know, at least up until, you know, pretty soon, and I have a funny feeling. She may actually be graduated. I don't know her age, um, but I know that was why they stayed in D.C. for a short time, but they do, um, you know, spend a lot of time in Chicago. Now, on to the Republicans. Um, the Republicans uh, have announced no Jacksonville. Uh, Tim, you were right until you were wrong. Um, but we will still let you be right because it's not like they picked any other city in Florida. And it sounds like they're still going to do something in Charlotte. Uh, it sounds like they're going to try to do like party business in Charlotte. And then Donald Trump is going to accept the nomination in private. No media is going to be involved, and nobody exactly knows what private means. Um, Catherine, do you know what private means? I have no idea. what. The, who knows what they're going to do? You know, he'll probably, you know, it'll be like a Las Vegas show. He'll come, he'll be lifted up in a gold throne or something. Who knows? <laughs> you like the same one I don't know. Um, I, I like that. <laughs> well, Tim, what, what do you say? They pulled out of uh, Jacksonville. Apparently, they wasted, you know, Hundreds of thousands, if not a million dollars, uh, of their own resources, really, uh, in Jacksonville and probably some of the cities, um, in Duval County. Uh, what What is your thoughts on where you know what What does private mean? Well, actually, the amount they wasted with the Jacksonville fiasco was six million dollars. I, I, I just know this. Reporters are banned from the convention when Trump is nominated. There'll be 336 delegates in the room, and they are saying that's all that's going to be in the room. And it, and they're blaming it all on the city of Charlotte and the governor of North Carolina and, and saying, you know, we got to abide by their rules on social distancing and, uh, you know, maximum numbers of people and all that but they're also banning reporters from like the republican national committee meetings they don't even c-span doesn't even know if they're going to let them in they haven't sent c-span any credentials like the democrats have the c-span's going to cover the democrats gavel to gavel whatever they decide to do in those two hours every night 
Uh, but the Republicans, who normally have 2,550 delegates there, are going to have 336, and they're going to nominate Trump in private. Now, why wouldn't someone why, – why would they object to C-SPAN cameras covering that? Uh, and, and another thing, no one knows where and what time Trump will speak on August the 27th. You would think by now that the Republicans at least would have decided a time because you know they want to put Trump all over the TV. You know they want to trumpet it. You know they want to advertise it. Well, shouldn't it be about time for them to decide what time he's going to speak on the 27th so that they can, you know, let the networks know so the networks can all reserve the time? I mean, it, it's what are they doing? <clears throat> Nobody knows what these people are doing. It's, it's just like a, a man. Well, it's, you know what? It's chaos. It, it, it's, it's welcome to Trump world. Don't worry, guys. I'll run the convention. Oh, Lord. Um, You're right, Catherine. They're going to do something stupidly spectacular to coronate him. Yeah. Are they worried about some kind of challenge from those 336 delegates? I mean, is is that why they're doing it in private? I, I bet they vetted and vetted and vetted and vetted those three hundred and thirty-six. Not so, only are not only are they loyal Trump delegates, but I bet every one of them have has had to pass the bootlicking test or something. Yeah. You know, uh, well, and given that William Weld and um, Mark Sanford and Joe, what was his name, Walsh, given that they you know couldn't even combine for more than like fifteen percent of the vote. In most of these states, uh, just in the, within the Republican confines, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of opposition to him. Now, well, let me talking about no press, talking about no press. Now, obviously, they'll ha- they'll want to show it on TV. Um, so, are they just going to have an RNC feed, and they're going to hire their own RNC camera crew to film it, and then send the feed out to ABC, NBC, CBS? Fox, um, you know, CNN and the like, I guess that would have to be the plan unless you just, if you don't send a feed out, then what do you show? Well, that's a good question. And who's going to speak? They don't have any ex-presidents that's going to come there and speak. (laughs) You know, like the Democrats do. They, They don't have nobody like that. And nobody wants see most of their senators speak right now. Yeah. So who are they going to have? Who, who's well, gonna if, if, if Jill Biden gives a really great speech at the Democratic Convention, Melania Trump will have her speech. So, you know, she's got to wait for, you know, Dr. Biden to give her speech so she can copy it. Um, there's who's one the speech. And, of course, you'll have the kids. You'll have all three who's Trumps. Um, assuming they don't don't they'll, they'll have well, you know, this is the thing. You see people like Tom Cotton are already jockeying for 2024. Rick Scott's jockeying for 2024. You're going to have people that are willing to speak because they want to go ahead and, and you know, put the bookmark 
in for that 2024 campaign. So they'll have okay. somebody now who they want to have. Wait, I don't know. Wait, 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 wait. The average person, though, that don't follow it closely, they're going to see Barack Obama at the Democratic Convention and say, oh, Barack Obama. And then they see Rick Scott. Well, who, who's this dude? You know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying. I mean, I mean always- well, I said Rick Scott to give a good speech. I mean, there was a guy in two in 2004 that was a state senator that gave the keynote, and he did a good job, and that's why we know he's Barack Obama now. He had to deliver. So, if you get the call, you better deliver, Catherine. Well, you know, they could always have Scott Bayo and um, <laughs> <laughs> all those other like loser celebrities who support him. <laughs> oh boy, that's the bottom of the barrel stuff. That get this, guys. Get this. You're gonna love this. I can tell you this. Every Trump admirer, every Republican's gonna be tuning in. I heard something today that just stunned me. Of course, John Lewis's funeral was carried on all the cable networks, including Fox. It was During on ABC. Time- it was yeah, on ABC but, uh, network, the whole thing. Yeah, but, but, but during the time, during the time of Lewis's funeral, viewership on Fox dropped for that three and a half hours. As soon as it was over, their viewership picked right back up. <laughs> that says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, that's as partisan it, as you can get there. And, and there you have the chicken and the egg problem. Uh, you know, Fox tries to do the right thing, and the viewers just won't watch. If Fox went out of business tomorrow, the viewers wouldn't go away. They'd just flip over to OAN, or, you know, InfoWars would get their own, you know, cable channel. Now, talking about having no um, press coverage, now, one thing, that means, you know, you won't have – different people in the convention hall to cover it. There's not going to be the traditional call. I could see the Republicans doing something like this, and I guess they still could change. Oh, we're not going to have um, uh, media coverage except, and then they name the, you know, the infotainers on Fox and the usual suspects on OAN, and they have just the Sean Hannity's and Laura Ingram's and Tucker Carlson's of the world, and they don't have – you know, credible, um, yeah, you know, middle-of-the-road or opposition folks but, yeah, but, from but, CNN but no, and MSNBC. No C-SPAN? No C-SPAN? They don't oh, even know. come it's in. They just show the thing. But, you know, they, they if they somehow gave special access to Sean Hannity because they seemingly – he's the number one, not Carlson or um, – Laura Inger, many of the other ones, if they somehow gave him special access, and then it would be like, oh, if you want to see the real coverage to the Republican convention, you'd have to go to Fox, because they actually have access, and ABC and CBS don't. Now, obviously, people can be in a studio and listen to the speech, or speeches, and they can give their thoughts after the fact. Um, but I but I could see something like that unfolding, and to me that would be very unfair if you limited access uh, to just a few friendly networks. And I'll tell you this: if they just don't have any access and people can't even cover it properly, they're cutting their own throats because 
this is a television media event. Catherine, what's your thoughts on if they just – well, actually, let's hold up on that, and let's welcome in to the Cudsley Vine for, I think, about the third time. Welcome, David Jonas. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, I'm becoming a regular at this point, aren't I? Well, you keep writing so regularly. We keep having to have you on. And, um, David, I think we were alluding to the fact that you had written a bunch of different pieces for Political Wire, and you're a members-only feature, but you hadn't uh, written any new uh, chapters for Spitball. Just first off, kind of tell our listeners, if they're waiting for the next chapter of Spitball, uh, what's kind of the timeline on that right now? Oh, I really hope I really hope there are, uh, you know, I, I, I <laughs> um, you know, I taken and I had a very long talk about this um, and, you know, it basically came down to, um, you know, I've got the bandwidth to write either the book or to keep writing posts. And he said, well, when we post a chapter, we get five people uh, commenting. And when you write a post, you get 150. And so I think that um, I, I think you'll see that book largely be cannibalized into post form. Um, so I think that content will largely, uh, largely get back out, but I think the book is, um, either shelved or on hold or whatever the, whatever the term is for, uh, uh not quite moving uh, forward. All right. Well, I tell you what, I, I know you're in the DC area. Are you familiar with a sports writer in your area, Tony Kornheiser? Of course, of course. Well, you know, he, he actually took all of his columns and put them into book form and said, I'm back for more cash. He'd already written them yeah. once. So, <laughs> so remember that when you come time to finish spitball, just uh, reuse that stuff. You're back for more cash. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Well, let's get into some of these actual writings, and they are great. I see why, you know, over, you know, hundreds of people are commenting on them. And let's start out right off with uh, you wrote a piece on June 10th. Um, about Joe Biden being difficult to beat. And I think that's why he did so well in the Democratic primaries. People knew Trump had to go, and we had to uh, nominate an exterminator, um, somebody that could rid uh, the White House of the pest, uh, the vermin, and uh, he was a safe choice. But you kind of laid a lot of meat on those bones. Tell us kind of your uh, thesis for that piece. So my thesis was, and obviously, you know, hindsight can be 2020, but my thesis for how he's been doing well in the poll that's been holding up kind of as, as the summer has progressed is that, um, you know, he's a moderate, but he's also taken some tough positions in the past that were very, um, you know, that kind of hurt him in the primaries, right? Whether it was the 90s crime bill or uh, voting for the Iraq war or, you know, anything that comes along with kind of being in um, you know, being a U.S. senator uh, for 40 years, um, you know, there's going to be a lot of times when you are behind, uh, when you are behind on the times or that, um, you know, political beliefs kind of evolve beyond you. But I think to, to Joe Biden's great credit is, um, you know, the, the real test of whether you can stay in politics for a long time is uh, can you evolve and can you do it in a way that actually matches up with the voters that you're trying to court, right? So in a primary, he looks like he's behind. Uh, it looks like he's been behind on racial justice. It looks like he's been behind on what, you know, whether that's a fair criticism or not um, for your interpretation. Uh, but, you know, um, uh, certainly um, somebody with kind of probably a foot on the, um, the older Democratic Party than the newer one. Um, you can kind of see that through, uh, you know, the, the big fights with Bernie Sanders and him having trouble tracking younger voters. But his coalition that he has to assemble now, um, 
you know, it's a coalition that's largely evolved with him in real time, right? Um, you know, marriage equality is something 20 years ago when I first started getting in electoral politics was a real, um, you know, nail biter issue um, that a lot of people, a lot of Democrats weren't um, willing to kind of put the political capital into. Now it's a no brainer. Um, as we've seen kind of as the summer progress, racial justice is becoming that. Um, and because Joe Biden's evolution on those issues largely matches those of kind of these suburban voters, you know, if, he, if he's looking to assemble a coalition in Arizona or Wisconsin, um, that that doesn't look like a flip flop. That looks like honest, genuine. Uh, and I believe it is from from Joe Biden. You know, it's, it's an actual updating of his values in a way that matches the voters he needs most. And that's that's why I think he's going to be so tough to beat. So I think at the end of the day, his values are largely in line with the voters he needs to get on his side to win in these crucial swing states. Yes. Um, actually, you're talking about how, you know, where he fits on the political landscape. A little over a year ago, um, it kind of, and I believe it was uh, Tagan Goddard on Political Wire that linked to it. There was a case study somebody wrote back in the early 70s following his upset victory for Senate that talked about that campaign. And, and I thought it was very instructive because he ran against the Vietnam War. And he ran um, for a lot of environmental issues back in 1972. He was to the left of the party clearly at that point. Um, and, of course, 72 was not a good Democratic year, and he was running against an incumbent and somehow won, uh, you know, even with McGovern at the top of the ticket. And I thought that was uh, very instructive. Do you think that he just seemingly um, – when the conditions are right, he wins. Now, of course, he had two failed – presidential races to where he couldn't, you know, secure the primary nomination. It's, it's tough to know, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's like baseball, right? It, it, if you're batting a high average, then you're talented. I, I think I'm somebody who probably underestimated his level of talent, basically kind of looking at 88 and 2008 in his previous run. Um, you know, he, he's, he's a Senator from Delaware. And so he's always going to have certain, um, you know, home state prerogatives, you know, it's, it's kind of the, uh, one of the, the, the great corporate capitals of the country. Um, and that's going to inform your politics a lot simply because you have to represent those interests in Congress. But I think his, I think, you know, I've just, I, and this I've thought about him for a long, long time, even dating back, I worked on the Obama campaign and I remember vividly him picking Joe Biden. You know, I always thought that Biden's core strength and the reason he's been able to, um, you know, stay, at such a high precipice of democratic politics is this kind of genuine reservoir of soul that he has, right? He just, I think, honestly cares about people and yeah, the politics can get messy and you can get caught up in past positions. And yes, maybe I hope would hope he'd be more, uh, you know, would have been more aggressive than that uh, or maybe not. But, you know, it, it turns out that if you are someone who, you know, and he suffered a lot of tragedy in his life, you know, there's an argument to be made that it really should be Bo Biden who, you know, is the nominee this year. I mean, that's certainly what I thought when, when his son started to kind of get into politics. Um, you know, he just has this just this, this reservoir of soul and feeling that uh, it makes it very easy for you to, uh, if not like him, just to, just to not be terribly angry with him. I just think that's, that's what, what Trump and what so many of his opponents have had a tough time with is that it's just hard to – it's hard to just put throw this guy into some – uh, some box label because then he does something really good out of the kindness of his heart, or he's able to establish a relationship with somebody across the political aisle, left or right. Um, you know, he, he just, he, he, he brings a certain level of soul 
to the position. And it turns out that's, that's very valuable. It turns out that's very valuable. Yes. Well, now let's turn to your latest piece. Uh, this will be a ticket. Two people will run, and he's narrowed it down and said it will be a woman vice president, judicial nominee um, on this ticket. And you wrote an article, I guess more of a historical piece, saying, yes, the running mate can help you win. Um, tell us, I guess, looking back, what you found, and then how does that project to the future? Well, it's, you know, it's very hard. If I've learned anything from campaigns, it's very hard to know what a campaign is thinking unless you're in the room, right? If you're not in the room, any decision that comes out of it, um, you're going to go, why did that happen? And whether even if it's a good decision or a bad decision. So it's really hard to know what frame the Biden campaign is taking, right? Uh, does he want somebody who is like, um, you know, the way that he was with Obama, you know, someone who can go and negotiate with in the Senate and somebody who, um, you know, is is going to build the relationships in Congress to get stuff done. Do you want somebody in a swing state? Um, do you want somebody who is going to, you know, you might be annoying the next vice president have a have a have a good uh, track record. You're basically uh, giving this person a 30 percent shot of being president one day. Do you have somebody in mind that you'd like to be president one day? So it's hard to know what frame. Um, the, the, the Biden team is going to use. But insofar as the goal of the Biden team is to win the election and to care about nothing else, um, you know, I think actually sadly looking at the Trump campaign, what they did in 2016 uh, with Mike Pence was actually a pretty good model, right? Uh, Mike Pence kind of shored up Trump's, um, we, we kind of forget this, but four years ago was, wow, can we really trust him to be a Republican and to fight for these core um, social issues um, actually helps, um, you know, uh, uh, solidify that. And then it also, uh, you know, I'm not sure how much uh, charm and appeal he had for your average Wisconsin, Michigan, or Pennsylvania uh, voter, but it certainly was a good signaling mechanism. I think that's the real value is that you say, aha, I'm choosing so-and-so from this region or this state or who, who appeals to, you know, young people or to, sw- or to you know, independent voters and, you know, this is the signal and everybody needs to get on the page because this is the strategy. And I think that's what I think that's what the Pence pick did for the Trump campaign. I really do think um, without that pick or a similar pick, I'm not sure he takes Michigan. I'm not sure he takes Wisconsin and Pennsylvania because it really put the Rust Belt into play, not because of Pence in and of himself, but because the campaign said, aha, now we're this is where we're going to focus our fire. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see what, what tax the Biden campaign takes because I really do think the vice presidential – I don't – I don't believe in the do no harm thing. I think, I think uh, a vice president can really actively help you win. Yes. Well, before I pass it over to Catherine, um, I guess tomorrow we can go ahead and announce you're now Mike Pence's new publicist. Um, that's probably some of the highest <laughs> paid part of the vice president's uh, political acumen. Um, but I do that say that in jest. I'm going to pass this to Catherine, who has other questions, and then she'll pass it to Tim. Catherine. Hey, thanks for being on with us tonight. We really appreciate having you back on. Um, of course, of course. I, I, first of all, I just want to say I absolutely 100% agree with you about Pence. I thought brilliant choice. I can't stand the man. I agree with him about nothing, but I think he was a, a, a really brilliant choice to balance uh, Trump in 2016. Okay, I wait one second. You, How much is Mike Pence going to pay for this publicist job? <laughs> Catherine won't get on it. Tim, you want it? <laughs> Sorry, I had to break in. It's okay. <laughs> I said I didn't like him, but 
<laughs> it was a good choice. Anyway, um, you wrote two pieces recently that um, when I first looked at the headlines, I thought, well, they don't, probably don't have anything in common, but it turns out they sort of did. There was one you wrote about the, um, the state of the Republican Party post-Trump. And then the other one was about uh, the how we're handling the racial um, injustice and the the whole scheme of you know how we handle this. And it turns out, I think that while you didn't actually about the Republican Party, I think what it all what a lot of it comes down to is the filibuster. Am I right? And 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 jumping to that conclusion? Yeah, I think, I mean, the filibuster is, is you're, you're going to have a lot of good reasons takes on a lot of, uh, I mean, it's just such a monumental procedural issue and good minds can disagree. Uh, but I don't think there's really a disagreement that the filibuster in the 20th century, at least, was primarily a tool of segregationists and was used to impede civil rights. And, uh, you know, a, a lot of people, uh uh, try to uh, disassociate from that connection when they do, when they defend the filibuster. I know when I when I worked in the Senate, uh, I worked for Al Franken for a couple of years of Minnesota, and you know there was a really big uh, argument, kind of uh, among senators and among you know you're just a young staffer talking to other other staffers about um, you know it, is the is the filibuster good if you care about progressive issues in the long term. Um, you know, I'm kind of heartened because in the time that I – and in my piece, for those who haven't read it, um, I basically say something to the effect of, um, you know, uh, uh, if we'll never have um, racial uh, – you know, we'll never really move forward on racial justice until Congress acts because it's, it's, it's always going to have to come from the federal level. You can't have uh, – you can't have a, a piecemeal – uh, racial justice movements throughout the throughout the country. You can you can do so. You can only do so much without Congress, um, and without Congress, without without getting rid of the filibuster, you'll never get it through, um, or it's going to take way too long. Right? It'll be another 30, 40 years. Um, so, with uh, I, I was heartened, and then I'll, I'll connect it to the Republican side. I was heartened because just the other day, while eulogizing uh, John Lewis, Barack Obama. Uh, basically said something to the same effect where, you know, if the filibuster is used to block John Lewis's legacy on voting rights, on racial justice, on uh, police reform, uh, then the filibuster has to go. So I think, I think there's a growing, there's a growing realization in the Democratic Party that not only does the filibuster need to go, but it might need to go in the name of racial justice, right? Maybe it needs to, make, maybe it needs to go in the name of making D.C. a state and Puerto Rico a state. Um, but it's going to have to be some test issue, right? You can't just abolish it uh, in and of itself. You have to have a, a, you know, a precipitating event, and maybe it's, maybe it's going to be a Voting Rights Act or something like that. Um, do, you want to, do you want to add something before I turn to how the Republicans No, well, my only, my only thought about this, because when I read it, <clears throat> I, um, I, I tend to agree with you though I do think things are a little different right now. And I wonder if um, it might not be necessary to filibuster might not be necessary because I think there's, there could be pressure on Republicans from their Republican moderates to 
not resist the, these kind of um, this kind of legislation because I think there's much less. I mean, I, there's certainly a lot of uh, people who are still against any kind of uh, legislation around um, around racial justice. I mean, there's a lot of them, but I also think there's a growing number of moderate Republicans who recognize that these problems need to be addressed. And well, can, I just can, can wonder you name three, can you name three of them in the, in the U S Senate? Can you name three oh, Republicans? Not, no, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about senators. I'm talking about well, their they're supporters. The ones who, they're, they're the only ones who matter though, right? It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many moderate Republicans there are in the country because as we know, moderate Republicans don't run the Republican Party, right? You, you can run a foul right, of right, moderate but, Republican. Go ahead. Well, I'm just wondering if they if, – I, I, I'm not saying that this is, would be easy, but I'm just thinking that there are – there could be more pressure on the, on the Republican senators from their people, their moderate people, to resist some of these things. But I'm not saying that's going to happen. I just wonder if this is a little bit of a different time. I, I think there's a chance that could happen. I, I, I just don't see, I just don't see a world. Let's, let's say Joe Biden wins and the Democrats take the Senate by, you know, a seat or two to keep the house. Um, you know, we saw in 2009 um, it wasn't okay. Well, we're in the extreme minority now. It's time for Republicans to be governing partners. They said, no, um, we're going to resist everything. You know, the Democrats were right. 60 votes. They could get a lot done. And then it went down to 59, and then everything stopped. And I think the problem with a lot of racial justice issues, if you're a Republican, is that it comes out to be zero, zero sum, right? Um, even if you're a Republican who, you know, on the inside, uh, you know, you, you want something to happen on racial justice issues. Uh, well, I can't have a voting rights act because that will hurt Republican voters because if more Democrats are voting, uh, that hurts my power. Um, oh, um, yes, D.C. is uh, – D.C. should be a state, uh, but they're going to be two Democratic senators, and I can't let that happen. Um, you know, it, it, I, I just don't see seven to eight Republicans standing up in the U.S. Senate and saying – something to the effect of, um, yeah, I'm going to work with Democrats on these issues. I think that means they get primaried. I think it means that, uh, you know, who even knows who's minority leader at that point? Um, it could still be Mitch McConnell. He's not going to let that happen. Um, so I, I, I think it's certainly possible. I, I, no, I, I'm not, as I said at the beginning, I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's, um, it would be easy. But I do think it's a little <laughs> bit different right now. Yes, yes. But it's, it was, that's. <laughs> That's the goal, right? The, the goal, the goal is that one day Republicans do, um, uh, Republicans do really want to work with Democrats on this sort of thing. I just, I, the mechanisms by which that happens, man, that just a lot of things have to fall into place. Yes, I agree. But yeah, I think, I think just, just, just yeah, just to put a put a bow tie on it. So you know, what is the Republican perspective on this? Um, I, I just think that Republicans, if nothing else, are very, very good at protecting their power. I think more than – especially Republican primary voters. I mean I think when you scratch beneath the surface of a lot of these kind of disparate, weird issues, you can't understand why Republican primary voters are focusing on this conspiracy theory or on this singular issue. Um, I think a lot of it comes down to that they're very sensitive about power and that they understand 
you know, this dates back all the way to the to the founding and the three-fifths compromise. And, you know, I think Republican primary voters just care about their power so much. And when it comes to the filibuster, I think they get it. I think Republicans understand the filibuster is a largely, you know, small C conservative um, institution, procedural institution, and that it protects them. Yes, uh, when Republicans get power, they can't do as much as they would like. Uh, but on the whole, it benefits them. It benefits them to slow progress down. Uh, you know, that's just the ball game um, for them on a very core level. Yeah, I, I, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm very optimistic. Stuff. I'm a little bit of a Pollyanna. I got to admit. No, it's good. It's it's, it's healthy. You'll, you'll live longer. You'll live longer. <laughs> So now to the the next the the Republican Party post Trump. Yeah. So um, in the pizza, basically here in Virginia, there was a very crazy primary slash convention in the fifth district, which kind of goes all the way north here in Winchester through Charlottesville. It basically goes from the the very tip of the state to the border of North Carolina, a very gerrymandered district um, where a first term Republican. Uh, Denver Riggleman was primaried. Uh, there were a lot of shenanigans. It turned into a drive-through convention where you had to drive up in your car to vote, and there was only one place to do it, and it was really it was a church very close to the opponent uh, opponent's home. And so um, Denver Riggleman lost his uh, his uh, lo- lost renomination. And so yes, these renomination losses are very rare. You know after. Um, AOC in New York uh, uh, won her primary. It wasn't like there was a huge, huge wave of victories immediately. You know, we, the Democrats nominated Joe Biden. Um, so is this just a blip? Is this just a statistical outlier? I think the real problem is is that uh, when you see a colleague go down, even if they're just a you know a junior member, um, you're going to say, "Whoa, how did that happen? What did that guy do wrong? Who did he run afoul of?" He didn't really run afoul of anybody. He, he he had Trump's full endorsement. Uh, Denver Riggleman um, conducted a, a wedding between two staffers who were both male. Um, you know, the, 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 the slights were very, very small, uh, but they were enough to get him kicked out. And it's that incentive, right? It's the incentive structure. If you are an elected representative, um, are you really going to stick your neck out on marriage equality if you're a Republican? Are you really going to stick your neck out on racial justice? Are you going to really stick your neck out um, – because, yeah, uh, maybe you don't want to get on the bad side of President Trump and his tweets, but, man, you really don't want to get on the bad side of your primary voters back home because they will toss you out immediately. I mean, the, the, the cutthroatness on the Republican primary side is um, – it, it's very difficult for them um, to ever ever work with Republicans and everything like that. So it just it's David, just, uh, you know, I think that's, that's the future. I think the inter- other interesting part of that piece was the number of voters – I think it was the, uh, the district had 120,000 registered voters. Is that right? Um, I don't. I got. I would have to bring up the numbers, but yeah, I think they had. And then only you know, only like 3,000 people voted. So, yeah, exactly. I think. Yeah. And exactly. and those that's a lot of that has to do with shenanigans too, because you've got this drive in drive up voting, and you know people are going to be like, oh, I'm not doing that. That's ridiculous, or you know, especially with a pandemic. I mean it. There's, there's, a, they, they use a lot of shenanigans to get, um, to get their ways. 
I think. Yeah, and I think and I think there's going to be a lot of shenanigans in the future. I think that's what's so that's what's so uh, distressing looking at the future of the Republican Party. Is I think it's just filled with shenanigans. There's just going to be a lot of shenanigans. <laughs> <laughs> that will be the word for the for the um, for the Republicans from now on. Shenanigans. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Well, thank you very much. This is very informative, and um, I'm going to pass it to Tim. Tim? Good evening, Mr. Jonas. How are you today? Hello. Doing great. Doing great. Uh, I want to talk about a southern state. You'd never know that by my accent, I know, but um, I want to talk about Texas. You wrote about it recently. And I just remain unconvinced that Joe Biden should contest the state heavily. I know, I know, I see the polls and what they say, but in 2016, Donald Trump won that state by like 800,000 votes. Nine points in a big old state like that is a lot. Other than the unpopularity of this president, what is it you see that convinces you that this is the time and the year to go after that state hard? Well, I think I think Texas is. Uh, I, I think your average, uh, uh, you know, wise consultant would probably tell you. I think would go along the lines of what you just said. So I'm probably a little bit of an mm-hmm. outlier. But I think there I think there are a couple things. One, um, you if Joe Biden really is up nine ten points kind of nationally, and you think that trend is going to continue, um, then you need to start thinking about twenty twenty two. You need to start, and this is what Republicans do so much better than Democrats. They did this in twenty ten, which is they started thinking, aha, the redistricting cycle is coming up. How do we lock in our gains for an entire freaking decade? Um, and if you want Democrats to move more towards that line of thinking, um, Texas is exactly that, right? There's, uh, you know, the, the, the state house, um, if, if Democrats have a, a majority there, which I think maybe win about 10 seats there to get that, um, that they have a seat at redistricting and they can't pass an extreme Republican gerrymander. Um, that saves you probably a couple house seats as well. Um, and so those house seats, uh, yeah, right now it seems like a luxury, but the question is, in 2022, does that marginal seat in Texas, in North Carolina, in Pennsylvania, in Virginia, um, is that something that you can lock down through gerrymandering and pull what the Republicans did in 2010, and which is just have this natural field advantage for a decade? I mean, I just think that that is the, the, the real case to be made. Um, but yeah, it, it's a little far aflung from just just win, baby. Uh, and and getting getting the electoral majority uh, of all of it. Hmm. Um, no, the I guess I'm an old school kind of hack. You know, I, it, it, in my mind, if I see the Biden campaign going hard at Texas, going all in in that state, I'm thinking, aha, they think. They already have the election won, and they're expanding the map. Would, would I be right in thinking that? Well, I, in my piece, I note one thing, which is even if you're not just big on Texas itself, um, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of people like to bring up the Hillary example in 2016. Um, you know, oh, she neglected Wisconsin and Michigan, and there's, there, there might be some degree of that, but she didn't neglect Pennsylvania. 
Um, every volunteer mm-hmm. I know in Northern Virginia, if they weren't knocking doors here, they were headed up to Pennsylvania to knock doors. And they still lost that state. Why? Because it probably, probably regions matter more than states. Yeah, states have some, um, uh, you know, uh, oddball intricacies to each of them, but um, you're generally making place for regions. And I think that the Texas region will probably have spillover effects into Arizona, which is what you really want. And, you know, I, 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 I just... I, I, I get that you want to target those tipping, tipping point states the most, but I, I also just wonder if that's not the correct frame at the end of the day and that taking a region-based approach, if you really just think, okay, Arizona is the real, the real uh, moneymaker, well, then you saturate Arizona, and once you hit diminishing returns there, then you go to Texas and, um, and, you, and you like that. That's, uh, you, know, you just do the money helicopter there, but it's very easy to spend other people's money. So <laughs> um, it's very different. Yeah, that's, that's, that's true. Uh, Texas has already uh, has perplexed me anyway because it's, it's one of only one of just a handful of states in the country, I think, that is actually majority minority. And you would think this state a while back would have been ripe for the taking, but I think, you know, in recent memory, Jimmy Carter's the only Democrat to to, to win it. And, and I've wondered what's been the problem with minority voters in that state. Do they tend to be more conservative? Or are they just not voting? What do you think? I'm not, I'm not a big Texas expert. I, I think the the voter turnout rates across the board of kind of democratic, um, you know, across uh, the board for, for, you know, these kind of uh, uh, minority voters um, uh, are just pretty low in Texas. Um, you know, I think a, that's partly because uh, it's not a swing state and we've never really put, I mean, you know, there have been efforts in the past uh, to turn Texas, but look, look at something like, like Beto and how he Beto O'Rourke who came within a couple of points. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, you need to act. You need to activate those low, um, low propensity voters, um, but you also need to persuade. And I think I don't think it's an either or. I, I or I don't think it's just you have to pick one. You know, the, the, Texas is quickly becoming one of the more educated states. You know, there's just going to be so much um, tech industry there, and so many young people are moving there because the housing is there. The housing is affordable there. I mean, you know, you really can have your cake and eat it too in Texas, which is to say. You can run a, a Joe Biden-esque uh, persuasion campaign and try to win those um, suburban voters, and then you can also do the real grassroots, um, you know, going into the neighborhoods of some more of these low propensity voters and giving them a real reason to vote. You know, I, I don't think mm-hmm. it's a big mystery. I don't think it's a big mystery why some people don't vote. You haven't offered a big enough piece of cheese, and mm. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> when, when, when you're older, you know, when when you're a little bit older in life. Um, and you've, you've, you've been through a lot of these election cycles and you have a home or you have a place you care about or you might be reliant on a government program or something like that, you have skin in the game. And, um, you know, it's up to Democrats for us to give, give people skin in the game. And it's not easy. It's not uh, – young voters in particular are very hard to, uh, um, you know, uh, to, to spin up into enough shape to get there and explain to them how to – get stamps if they're going to, you know, where do you even get stamps these days if you're going to do uh, an absentee ballot? But, um, you know, that, that's why I think the investment is largely worth it is I just think there's so I, – I think when you say to me, well, why not spend that dollar, that next marginal campaign dollar in Florida 
or Arizona. Um, I just wonder if those are saturated and this is this, and Texas and maybe a place like Georgia is that's where your next marginal dollar is going to go the farthest. Okay. Uh, funny you should bring up dollars because uh, I was going to broach that subject with you also before we turned it back to David because on another subject, about a month back, you wrote about the obvious disconnect between Trump's overall numbers versus his numbers on the economy and that you think that the era of the pocketbook voter is basically over. Now, see, all my life I've heard people vote their pocketbooks first. Is that era over? I I think as a useful frame for you and I to predict what's going to happen in politics and where to invest in resources on a campaign. Yes. I think that era is over. I mean, in that the, the, the poll that uh, Trump's numbers have really sagged a lot recently, even on economic stuff. But uh, mm-hmm. when I posted that Trump was up six points on Biden on the economy, when the unemployment uh-huh. rate was over 13% and we just had trillions of dollars of wealth just evaporating and uh, you know, just tremendous economic distress. And yet here he is getting um, six points more, than uh, Biden. Well, if, if we really are still in a pocketbook era, um, then he's probably up six points, right? He's probably in the lead because mm-hmm. the pocketbook mm-hmm. is what matters. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as Tegan says, Tegan Goddard said, um, you know, it's largely political views that inform economic views now. Um, or if not that, um, the signals are just so crazy mishmashed and crosswired. Um, it's a little analytical use, i.e., mm-hmm. um, I-, I can't rely on your take on the economy to be predictive of how you will feel going into the to the filling out your ballot in 2020. So, so you you've made a compelling case as to why voters may not necessarily reward Donald Trump for a good economy, but now the economy is not good, obviously at all. It's terrible. Will those same voters then turn and punish Donald Trump because of the economy. I'm not sure your 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 person who is inclined to vote for Trump is still probably going to vote for Trump. But as uh-huh. you probably know, elections like these are on the margin, and so it's that you know that one percent, two percent, three percent. And I think for a lot of them, it's not so much that I worry about them flipping to Joe Biden. I just think they're not going to hustle. They're not going to – maybe they vote for Trump, but they're not going to pressure all their friends. They're not going to go knock doors or do whatever the digital equivalent is. Um, I think it just takes so much of the wind out of your sails um, because, uh, you know, when when I go and advocate for my candidate, whether it's just my neighbor or my brother or something like that, um, you know, I can't say, hey, this guy's done a great job on and then (laughs) list off nine different issues, whether it's the economy, whether it's COVID – whether it's, uh, you know, security here or abroad, uh, you know, I, I just think that I think that as the economy just really just starts, uh, I mean, we're just so stalled out right now and schools are about to, I mean, I can't tell you what's going to happen when the schools don't open up. Um, you know, I don't know what they're doing down in Georgia, but, it, it, you know, up here in Northern Virginia, I mean, they might be going to full online learning. Well, that means a lot of people can't go back to full time work. And that's just going to, and then unemployment benefits are expiring. You know, it, it's just going to be a dispiriting time to be a Republican, and that demobilizes people. That that brings down their level of activism, 
And uh, that that really does matter at the end of the day. That really is worth a couple points to Joe Biden um, in the states that really matter. All right, and I certainly appreciate it, Mr. Jonas. And with that, I will send it back to David. David? Yes. Well, David, um, we covered all those different topics you had, but I believe you had a question for us. If I'm not mistaken, if I am, just move on. But if you wanted to ask that now. Well, no, I wanted to ask, you know, the, the, the number one, I got a couple of emails on the Texas piece, and they said, why not Georgia? Why not Georgia? And I thought, oh, man, I know, I know a crew out there in Georgia that could probably answer that question better than I. I mean, what, what is your sense of the, the, the value of the Biden campaign making a real, real play for Georgia? Because all the polls have that, I, have that close. I can answer that somewhat. <laughs> They're here. The Biden people are here. They are going hard after the state down to the county level. They are organizing, and they are doing it hard and in a hurry, and they're calling on people, especially virtually from all over the country, um, organizers to come in and and do it. So they're they're, they're going after this state. Don't you see that in the Atlanta area, Catherine? Yes. Yes, I mean, they, they made that big announcement this week about the staffing, and um, I've seen a lot more um, virtual uh, invitations to, uh, I, because I read my boss's email, I, not, I, I'm permitted to, <laughs> I don't just randomly read it. Um, she gets, a, she's been getting a lot of invitations to, uh, virtual town halls and virtual fundraisers. And yeah, I think there's a lot of activity uh, sort of bubbling up. It's not as visible as you might expect it, partly because people aren't coming here. But, and then I also think the loss of Congressman Lewis has put a lot of focus on Georgia too. So I think, yeah, I think, I think, I think they're working it. Yeah, um, I tell you this. I think as far as Joe Biden winning Georgia's sixteen electoral delegates, those are gravy delegates. I mean, it'd be great to have them, but if you have get those sixteen, you already have Michigan, you already have um, Wisconsin, uh, Pennsylvania. You probably even have Arizona's before that. Uh, the Omaha North Carolina. North Carolina, you got all those. So um, you don't need those as president. But if you want to function, you're going to have to have a working majority in the U.S. Senate. Wouldn't help to yep. add more seats in the House, and you do get that Gwinnett County seat with Carolyn Bordeaux. But you want to try to get those two Senate seats. Now, those are going to be tougher, and, and I saw somebody on Twitter make the point, and I think they're absolutely right. Um the, it may have been Niles um, that put, said this. You have to run. The, the Senate nominees actually are going to run behind Joe Biden by a few points. So he needs to get his number up to like 53 or something in Georgia for them to get to 50. Maybe 52 for them to get to 50. Because, you know, unfortunately, uh, John Ossoff looks a little like a little bit stronger candidate. But we were talking about this. It's, it's right now – the Democratic candidates in the special election are having a hard time breaking out. And so you're really going to have to have a coordinated effort to kind of work that out. Another thing we, we were going to talk about, we're not going to get to it today, um, 
they did a Monmouth poll, and they actually broke it out um, with some numbers. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, we've been told for a while is if you're getting, say, 20% of the white vote in Georgia, 24% of the white vote in Georgia, you don't win. Right now, I think um, whites without a college degree, um, Joe Biden is getting in the low 20s. Was it 22, if I'm not mistaken, if y'all remember that? Uh, clarify for me. And then whites with a college degree, he was getting in the low 30s. I was surprised that that number was so low. So there's still some work to do, and I think that's where the, the um, plus is going to be. You're going to have to add a few more white voters with a college degree um, into the Democratic side. So that's kind of my take on Georgia, and that lays in on Catherine and Tim. So, David, was any of that helpful? Absolutely. You know, my, my one regret in writing this piece about a big investment in Texas is I wonder if the actual the better arguments for Georgia because – so many of those trends are also happening in Georgia, and you have two Senate seats um, up for grabs there. So um, I'll, I'll, I'm definitely keeping my eyes very close on uh, what's brewing in Georgia as, as, uh, as we get closer to November. Yeah, and MJ Hanniger, I guess you've got to watch how she does against John Cornyn because if that if she does better than the Democratic candidates in Georgia, that factors in. Um, another thing, um, what is Texas 19 media markets? Georgia has one colossal media market. Then you have smaller markets in Savannah, out part of Chattanooga, Augusta. Um, I think Macon kind of bleeds into Atlanta, but you have a much smaller media markets other than Atlanta, so it's a easier you know media market to navigate. And I heard David Plus say, uh, Barack Obama's twenty uh, two thousand eight uh, campaign manager say, if you make it you know choice on Texas, you better be right. You can't make that choice wrong. If you're Joe Biden. Hmm. Yeah. So, well, David, we thank you for coming on and thank you for being not only a guest tonight, but a questioner. Kind of the final thing we'll let you say uh, before we close it out is if folks want to read these pieces, um, tell folks how they can get there or if there's anywhere on social media, anything else. Uh, you know, the, the best place is uh, the, the best website uh, covering politics and, and the entire world politicalwire.com um, it's uh, there's a $5 a month uh, political membership you're supporting A, you're supporting um, taking Goddard who I think is one of the most uh, is just an absolute treasure um, uh, for internet commentary and political analysis um, and then as a side benefit you also get a little bit of me um, every week or so so that's uh, that's my pitch there well good deal well David we thank you for coming on the show thank you so much thank you David thank you sir bye all right, that was David Jonas. I feel like I need to say his name, not to confuse with my name. Um, great to have him on. Hopefully he'll write some more. We can have it on maybe one more time before November. But until then, guys, it's been the Kudzu Vine. Good night, y'all. Good night, everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution with a strong and united...